know what hovers over this house, but it was strong enough to punch a hole into this world and take your dog away from you. It keeps Caroline very close to it and away from the spectral light. It lies to her. It says things only a child can understand. It has been using her to restrain the others. To her, it simply is another child. To us, it is the beast. Now let's go. of Chicago, this is the Unenthusiastic Critics Halloween Movie Marathon. Hello everyone and welcome to the Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough, I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is the ghost with the most, my late wife Nakia also known as the unenthusiastic critic. Hi. Should I say boo? Boo? That's boo. as scary as you can be? Sure. That's your scary voice? That's my scary voice. You have way scarier voices than that. <laughs> On today's episode, Nikki and I are continuing our 2018 Halloween movie marathon with a discussion of one of cinema's greatest ghost stories, Jack Clayton's The Innocents from 1961. Nikia, are you afraid of no ghosts? Isn't it? I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Um, I, I put it in the form of a question. <laughs> I How do I feel about ghosts? I come from a family that is pro-ghost. Pro-ghost in favor of ghosts? In favor of ghosts. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think they're like equal opportunity ghosts. I think they are in favor of particular ghosts. Uh, my great-grandmother, before she passed away, would say that she saw various members of her family that had passed and had conversations with them. And then... After my grandmother passed away, a number of people in my family, including my mom and my aunt and my cousin, said that they saw her, that she had come to them either in a dream or in waking and sort of communicated with them. I seem to be ghost blind. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't nobody talking to me. So I don't know what that you, means. You were the only member of your family that has I'm, never seen I'm the a only ghost. member of my family. I am, you know, handicapped in that arena and that I, I have not. And I don't know if that's because the ghost world knows that I would flip the fuck out, but, <laughs> you know, if they're coming with some lotto numbers or some clarity on what I need to be doing with my life, then I welcome the visit. But, you know. If they're coming to just knock shit off the mantle. Right. Like, I'm just, I'm not super interested in that. So. Rattle some chains. Exactly. So, oh, wait, I, we need to back up. I don't understand. So, these are not frightening appearances. No, these are all members of the family that have passed who are coming back to just sort of, I guess, touch base. <laughs> <laughs> with the uh, the the remaining members of the family, just okay. to say, you know, so these I'm are a benevolent, sort of, loving, yes, the sort of reassurance of I'm here with you, you mm -hmm. know, I'm watching over you, I see you, I'm, you know, I'm still around, sort of visit. And do they recur, or is it just like a one-time thing? Um, I think there may have been. Is it just like, okay, I'm on my way where I'm going. This is just a drive-by. Right. No, I don't think they're just drive-by. I think it. A couple people have had multiple visits. But those have been dreams. Like, they've been visited in a dream. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know 
the sort of rhyme or reason of why they come back when they come back. I don't know if it's because that person sort of needed to be reconnected with for whatever like they were, you know, my grandma re- realized that, you know, my cousin was going through something at a time. And so she came to visit or my mom was going through something at a time. And so she came to visit. I don't know what that's about, but yeah. I'm, I'm sort of with you. I would not find that comforting. I think it I could would not be. find that a bomb in a difficult <laughs> period of my life. <laughs> If I wake up and, you know, my dead father is sitting at the foot of the bed. I think it could be. You get over the initial shock and then it's like, oh, this is, I get to see you another time and that's nice and we can talk. I also just in general don't like that idea. Like people always say, oh, they're looking down on you. They're watching you. I don't like that. I'm a very private person. I do not like, like, I don't talk to my living family and tell them what's going on with my life. I don't want my dead family watching everything I'm doing. I see. You don't find any comfort in the fact that you're somehow, they're sort of, I guess these would be your guardian angels, essentially, sort of watching out for you. No. No. Okay. It's like, you know, it's like the NSA has bugged your apartment. You're, you know, giving it a nefarious spin. I think it's somebody out there has your back and is sort of watching out for you. And that's a nice thought. What are they, what are they doing for me? Like you said, they're not giving me lottery numbers. They're not doing that. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing. Are they making buses miss me when I cross the street in a way I don't know about? Possibly. Okay. Maybe. Okay, so none of these are malevolent visits. No, which is the, I've never the heard normal, of any negative, you know, like poltergeisty sort of milieu things. of yeah. the ghost jo- no, story genre. No, they've all been positive family visits. Okay. <laughs> and you believe in this? I do. I think I think it's arrogant to think that we know everything that is possible within the realm of this universe. I, so I would agree with that. I believe that people are sort of made of energy and energy, you know, can leave one source and then it's sort of redistributed into the universe. And so I, I do, I believe that there could be other things happening that we are not privy to, which is why I say, I don't say I don't believe in ghosts. I say I'm ghost blind. Like I just. <laughs> You're just not on my, that frequency. Right. It's not on my radar or they haven't invited me to the party yet. So, <laughs> um, but I, I do believe that there is a sort of another, there, there, there is a possibility that there is another realm. Okay. I feel like, the the ghost story, like I said, I mean, most of them, these are not pleasant encounters. No, right. And that makes sense to me because it feels like if somebody's hanging around, something went wrong. They got a score to settle. Right. They mm-hmm. got a score to settle. Mm-hmm. Something is off with the natural order of thing. They move the headstones, but not Unless the you think, you know, Coco-wise, that we, we all just hang around. The movie Coco. Yes. I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. Right. And so there are some cultures that do think that it's just like that barrier between life and death is much more permeable than what we mm-hmm. sort of assume that it is. And that, you know, death is a natural part of life and that, you know, there is some sort of transference that happens. And So there's just millions of ghosts sure. just hanging around. Though at this point... Billions, I guess. I wouldn't hang around here if I were dead, but... No. That's, <laughs> I mean, again, that's just kind of a depressing thought to me. If there is a heaven, I want to be up at the Prince concert. Like, I don't want to be down here with y'all because this shit is bad. Okay, well, as I think we mentioned on a recent episode, our apartment is either haunted or we have some kind of gas leak that's driving the cat crazy. Or the cat is just crazy. Yeah, but she she didn't used to be this crazy. This mm-hmm. is a new form of crazy that is manifesting itself since we moved into this apartment that's a few true. months ago. That is true. Yes. So, it could be my grandma. What's she, your grandma's fucking with our cat? Well, she wouldn't be fucking with our cat. I mean, she's... Did she she's, have cats? 
No, no one else in the family likes cats. Okay, I'm, I well, think that's I'm the not only cool. one that likes cats. <laughs> that's not cool for her to come over here and fuck with our cat. So it could be one of mine. Um, and, it, and they're talking to the cat, not to me, which I take very personally. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the cat is on that frequency, right? That you exactly. Are not on. They're they, maybe they're trying to communicate with her because I am, you know, ghost blind. <laughs> So they're trying to get her to tell me what's happening. But, you know, if that's the case, that's not working. I don't know. What's You're not getting the message. Right, I'm not getting the message. So, you know, right on a steamy mirror or something, you know. You you feel you feel a little bad about being ghost blind, I do don't feel you? super bad about it. You because like I feel like you're inadequate like or something. I do, I do. Well, it also taps into my inherent fear that I am the devil. Not the devil. But that I am... <laughs> I, I'm familiar with that fear. I've had that fear myself. But so my family is fairly religious. Like we, I grew up in the church. We went to church every Sunday. My mom was in the choir. I was on the usher board. Like we were very deeply involved. My great grandmother was in the church. Everybody was in the church. And you know, on Sunday services, when everyone else was sort of you know catching the Holy Ghost and really feeling the Word, I would just I understood it on an intellectual level, but spiritually, I couldn't really tap into it. I like the idea of church because I like the idea of community, mm-hmm. and I think. Churches play an important sort of role as anchor institutions and communities. But I, I just wasn't getting that sort of hit off of it that other people were getting. So there's a, a deep part of me that feels that I'm somehow bereft <laughs> of soul um, and godliness. And so my inability to sort of communicate in the way that other people in my family have with members of, of our family that have passed has only sort of, started, sort of reinforced those feelings that, you know, I'm like Bart Simpson after he sold his soul to Mill <laughs> like the, the door. Yeah, open they don't open for, for me. I, like, I walk around feeling like that a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm sure that's going to be a reckoning for me at some point. <laughs> and, it, it is a little hurtful that they have not come to me. Though, to be fair, I recently did have a dream about my grandmother. And I don't know if that was her directly coming to me or if it was because... You did. We had just unpacked when we moved into this apartment and we found a drawing that I had done of her. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's been in the bedroom, so... Yeah, it's s- s- sitting there it's in the bedroom right, staring right. at you while you sleep. So. <laughs> so it could just be that I, my brain was sort of sloughing that off <laughs> and she sort of you know, manifested in my dreams in that way. And you came out of that dream with numbers. I did. That we played, and they were not winning numbers. Those were not winning lottery numbers. So, it might have been good for the lottery in some other state. Where was your grandma from? (laughs) Because here in Illinois, they didn't do dick for us. So, yeah. So, again, which maybe that wasn't her. Maybe that was just my brain, you know, the synapses firing. And so, yeah. I'm a little disappointed. Okay. Well, again, I feel like... Maybe a Ouija board would help no, you get in touch with that side of yourself I, and your, that, I, no, because, that branch no. of the family. All that I have uh, any interest in is inviting positivity into my space. I do. When you do the Ouija boards, you open the door to all kinds of just rogue characters, man. Like, no, nice people. Not nice people. Like in The Exorcist, the little girl was talking to Captain Howdy. Yeah, no. They stole her and sucked her into a TV. <laughs> so I'm. No, that was the poltergeist. Oh, poltergeist, whatever. Movie. But yeah, so I just no, I don't want to. I don't want a free pass. I want selective entry if possible. <laughs> you don't want to just open the window. No, and I just, don't. Yeah, you know, say come on in. Floodgates sort of open. Yeah, okay, that's fair. That. Does your family believe in ghosts? Uh, to my knowledge, no. No one in my family has ever seen a ghost mm-hmm. or encountered a ghost. Actually, that's not true. 
My older sister, for a while, I think, lived in a house that was supposed to be haunted. They had a ghost whose name was Frank, I believe. They named their ghost Frank? I don't know if they named him Frank or if they had some kind of, you know, information gleaned from ancient deeds to the property. <laughs> that a Frank died a in Frank the house? Frank died horribly mm-hmm. there. I don't know. Okay. I was skeptical. It is Maine, though. I mean, that's, according Frank. to Stephen King, that is ground zero. Okay, that's, the whole place is Indian burial ground. <laughs> Indian burial grounds and pet cemeteries. And, See, yeah. yeah. So it's likely that it was that Frank was real. Um, I, di- I did grow up about a 20-minute walk from that pet cemetery. Did you ever go over there? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't care that much. Really? Or were you just afraid? <laughs> you can admit it. It's okay. You guys had a dog that died, didn't you? We had a lot of dogs that died, yes. Did you yes. bury them in the pet cemetery? <laughs> we did not, know. You should have totally bury them in the pet cemetery. <laughs> okay, did you see that movie? I did. That's not... I did. You're talking about people making bad decisions, <laughs> and now you're telling me to bury our pet German Shepherd in the pet cemetery. But think of the story you would have advice. today uh-huh. if yeah. you survived. If I survived right. to tell the story. <laughs> would you like me to bury you there if you go before I do? I'm not a pet. Again, did you see the movie? I did, but... Because uh, that was the whole point of it. No, I want to be burned. (laughs) (laughs) See, the problem with not being buried is that then you don't get to come back for the thriller music video thing. Like, if something like that would ever happen, I wouldn't be able to participate in it as a zombie. Right, the zombie apocalypse, you don't get any of that. But, I mean, being a zombie doesn't look like a lot of fun. And what if the cremated people do come back in some way, but they're just like, oh, shit, I'm just a pile of ashes here. Okay, I don't know. Everybody how, else is having fun. What a pile of ashes. Well, they have, like, the consciousness, but, you know, nothing else. <laughs> Maybe even the appetites. Like, oh, I could really go for some brains, but I can't get any because I'm just a pile of ashes. A pile of ashes. That's, sure, that's you bleak. Know, little receptacle. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to be in a receptacle. I want to be strewn about. <laughs> um, I don't know where. I haven't decided that yet. Okay. Actually... So they have those things where you can be made into a tree. I wish I was a fucking tree. I wish I was a fucking tree. Yes. Uh So if you could just make me a tree. (laughs) (laughs) That would be my ideal ending. I would like to be a tree. I'll see what I can do. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk about ghost stories. Okay. Ghost movies. Do you have some some favorites? Um, And by favorite, I mean ones that scare you and make you uncomfortable to sleep alone any of them scare me so i have one that you hate okay which i think is you know pretty basic ghost story which is sixth sense yes i do hate that movie <laughs> a lot. i actually don't and this is what i think there's a really good scene in it there's the scene where cole and his mom played by tony collette you remember, you remember the names of, of the characters in this movie of course. Didn't he, like, go to a school that used to be a slave quarter or something, and he saw, like, a lynching ghost or something? It was... There's a lot of stuff going on in the movie. I saw um, that movie once, which was one more time <laughs> that I needed to see that movie. Anyway, he and his mom are in the car, and this is after he's been seeing ghosts, and he's been telling her that he's seen ghosts, and she hasn't believed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's sort of just like, you know, what is going on? Just let me in. Just help me to understand what's happening. And then he tells her... That her mom, his grandmother, has come to him and she's like, okay, don't say things like that. Like, that's a terrible thing to say. It's horrible. And then he proceeds to, like, tell her things that Tony Collette has told her grandmother after she died or something. So it's, you went to the grave and you asked her a question and she said every day. And then Tony Collette, and then he's like, what did you ask her? And Tony Collette has this such a beautiful, powerfully sensitive moment where she's, like, tearing up and can barely talk. And it's like, I asked. <laughs> 
if she was proud. <laughs> but it's so <laughs> it gets me every time where I'm like on the verge of tears. <laughs> so for that one scene alone, I love the sixth sense because I think Tony Collette is amazing in it. Um, well, Tony Collette is always she good. is she is. But again, Mike Shyamalan on the other hand is a hack we can, and a half. We can talk about that, but. I think Tony Collette is great. And I actually thought that the little... I don't remember what his name was. Um, uh, something, something, something. Yeah. He's a Cole. Three, three names. The little, character's name is yeah. Cole. Uh, <laughs> I thought that he was actually good. So, yeah. So, again... Here, here's here's my real problem with the six Okay. Sense. And it's not... This you is think not you're bragging. smarter than the movie. No, it's that's the thing, though. And it can, it'll come up with another movie that we could talk about here, which is uh, The Others, the Nicole Kidman right, movie. Right, which is another Your Ghost Which kind of has the ghost. same twist, yeah. doesn't it? If you're I a ghost and you don't know Okay, so ghost. here's the thing. Once word gets out that there's a twist to these movies, mm-hmm. you can pretty much figure it out from the trailer, right? I mean, The Sixth Sense, oh, everybody's talking about the amazing twist at the end. <laughs> Even if they don't spoil the twist for you, there's only so many things it could be. Sure. And with both of those movies, I was just like, yeah, the motherfuckers are dead, aren't they? But does that make... Like, you okay, just... but even if you figured it out, does that still make them bad movies? Can't you still enjoy them as films? Even if you figured it no, out... No, and I don't think The Others is a bad movie. Okay. I do think M. Night Shyamalan is an overrated, talentless hack. Okay, so we're not going to go here. Anyway. Anyway. One of my other ones that I like that you don't like... <laughs> oh, good. ...is 13 Ghosts. <laughs> okay, that is just a silly, <laughs> silly movie. Tony Shalhoub and Matthew Lillard <laughs> in a horror film. Fucking brilliant. I think it's wonderful. I love 13 Ghosts so much. Particularly because it has the sassy black nanny... Who's like, bitch, I'm getting out this house. I love it. I love 13 Ghosts. I get that mixed up with the, I think it's the Jeffrey Rush remake. Oh, that's terrible. Of, I think Tay Diggs is also of, in that. Uh, yeah. I want to say. House it? on Haunted Hill. House on Haunted Hill, yes. Yes, that is awful. With Famke Jansen, yes. is she in that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and aren't those sort of the same movie? They're, they're a little similar. There's they like have a lot of vibes. CGI ghosts. Yeah. There's way too many characters. And just sort of picking off one. Kind of campy. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're mm-hmm. both terrible. But okay. I actually love that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. Um, and then the other one that I like that you don't like is The Haunting. You don't like... you don't you it, don't like that movie. You can't <laughs> possibly... You're and pissed. And years ago... Here's it is. No, you're pissed because you showed me the original and you were like, oh, we need to upgrade your, your taste because you've only seen... I had only seen the remake. Yeah. And I still, to this day, like the remake better with... You can't possibly. Catherine Zeta-Jones. Then, then we have to get divorced. <laughs> and Owen Wilson. <laughs> that is an unwatchably bad movie. I don't think it is. It is. It's Catherine Zeta-Jones. And the original is so brilliant. Looking hot. And her name is Theo. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Okay, we really have to get a divorce. No, I don't think so. And it stars that woman that I think should work more. Because here's what happened with that. So we, this was one of our first Halloween marathons when we were doing the series for the blog. Yes. And I decided we were going to watch The Haunting because it's a great movie, Mm -hmm. the original 1963 version. Mm -hmm. And as we were sitting down... To watch it, you mentioned that you had, like, just a week earlier watched the remake on cable. Yes. With Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yes. I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know why you're confused. It's a wonderful film. <laughs> it's so good. Like, she's have what, what is that actress's name? Lily Taylor. Yes, Lily Taylor. She just had Who, again, is always good. Again, right. Yeah. So I feel like I'm right. You're not, though. Because it's I a am. terrible, terrible no. movie no. that completely misunderstood everything <laughs> that was great about the original Haunting, everything that was great about Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, it was a travesty. I disagree. Okay. 
<laughs> Divorce. So those are my... And Casper. I mean, I grew up on Casper. <laughs> the cartoon. Was the movie Casper good? Good. I, I don't know In that what, I ever I saw mean, that one. it was one. fine. It was... It's like Christina Ricci, It was Christina Ricci, it? young mm-hmm. Christina Ricci, yes. Um, it was fine. It wasn't... I prefer the cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> but again, Friendly Ghosts. I like Friendly Ghosts. You like friendly Ghosts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Poltergeist. Yes. Are you a fan of Poltergeist? Well, those are male- malevolent ghosts. Though... To be fair, they had a right to be pissed off because you move the headstones and not the bodies. Yeah, that's just bad business it's practice. Terrible practice. And so I would like if you put a ugly ass condo on top of my <laughs> resting place, I'd be like, oh, we got to fuck with your kids now. So you know, I understand. I understand being pissed off. Put up your McMansions all over Basically. my family's burial plot. And I mean, again, the fact of the matter is, like, this whole fucking country is a damn burial plot that we just paved over. So the fact that we aren't all being haunted at all times is quite amazing. You're you're just in a cheery mood today, aren't you? you? Where 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 are we getting the cheer from? <laughs> Tell me where to find it, please. <laughs> I will sup from that cup if you can let me know where it is. I would be cheery if somebody would bring me some lotto numbers. So, well, apparently they're not going to do that. So, if we could, oh, maybe we should like mess with static. That seems to be a way to connect with ghosts, isn't that that um Kevin Bacon movie, the other terrible ghost movie that I've seen? <laughs> You've seen all the terrible I've seen ghost movies. A lot of terrible ghost and movies. None of the great ones. And then when you no. do see the great ones, you don't appreciate them. No, because I, I don't know. Like I like I think I like cheesy CGI cheesy, corny. ghosts. And I don't think the CGI is part of it. I just think I like maybe because I don't like I don't actually like being scared. And so those films aren't scary, they're just sort of ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Um so maybe that's why I like them. Because it allows me to participate in this genre without actually having to be frightened. So you might actually then like the the current wave of horror movie slash ghost stories. Mm-hmm. All those PG-13 rated The Conjuring mm-hmm. and Annabelle and that whole, that there's a the whole doll. franchise. Yeah. There's a whole cinematic universe. The Nun, I think, was the one that just came out. Yeah. Uh, I think they're kind of terrible, so it sounds like you would really enjoy those. <laughs> but all my terrible ones star... Actors or actresses that I I respect, so that's part of it too. Like got Lily Taylor, you got Tony. I think I think Lily Taylor's actually in really The Conjuring. Okay, I might check that out then. (laughs) (laughs) All right, the other movie I guess we've watched uh, for the blog that would fit this category would be Juwan the Grudge. Yes, that was good. How did that work for you? Did that work for you? Yeah, that was good. Creepy little Japanese kids. Very creepy. I don't know that I would ever watch it again, but yeah, very creepy. (laughs) You don't actually remember any of the movies we watched, do you? I mean, I purge a lot of stuff that I don't need. (laughs) (laughs) The whole point of this experiment is just wasted. It's not. When I deeply connect with the film, I remember it. Like, I remember all of 13 Ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) It's so depressing. Do you have favorite ghost movies? Well, you've already rejected my, The Haunting is probably well, my favorite ghost you're just movie. Wrong, but okay. <laughs> and you actually liked that movie when we watched I it. I did. You just don't remember anything about it at this point. <laughs> because mine is so strong in my head. People my can go version. read that blog post and you actually liked that I movie. I do remember liking it, but uh, I if you know you were to ask me which one I was gonna watch again, I'd watch the Lily Taylor one. <laughs> Jesus. Um, I mean, I think The Shining has to yes. factor into any conversation sure. of the great ghost stories. I'm a big fan of Poltergeist. That was a big movie when I was a kid. That yeah. came out when I was about 12 or 13 years old, which was a really good age. I remember 
specifically the guy ripping his face off in the mirror. That was a pretty disgusting scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of my favorite ghost stories is not really a ghost story. And I can't remember if you and I watched this. Is Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. Uh, I don't think we watched it. Okay. That needs to go on the list then. That's a ghost story without the ghost. Okay. It's the second wife of a man and just the first wife, the dead first wife's shadow just Oh, he like remakes her everything. into to look like her, right? No, that's Vertigo. You're thinking Oh, yeah. that's Vertigo. I'm thinking. Yeah. Okay, yeah. No, she moves into this huge mansion uh-huh. and it's just everything is just saturated with the memory of this dead first wife mm. who was so perfect and, you know, who everybody apparently loved so much that the new wife is just haunted by that. Again, there's nothing supernatural happening in the movie, but it's a it's a brilliant ghost story. Mm. Did we watch the one where that woman fucks a ghost? <laughs> the Patrick Swayze movie? <laughs> no. <laughs> good, good ghost movie, though. That's another great one. Um, great. Are we using the word great in I this am. context? I actually think I am. Okay. One, I love Patrick Swayze. And two, I think I am. Yes. <laughs> Because you have, yeah, no, I mean, it has to be, you have, I mean, it's Patrick Swayze possessing Whoopi Goldberg to make out with his wife. Yeah. And I think, like, come on, that's genius. No, the one that's, it's old, and he's like a... And a guy fucks a ghost. No, it's a woman. A woman fucks a ghost. Yes, he's like a Navy guy or something, like he's a... (laughs) (laughs) The ghost in Mrs. Mule. Yes! They do not fuck. (laughs) In that movie. That movie, first of all, was made in about 1940. It's not really a fucking kind of movie. Okay, Second there were all, babies born very, in the 40s. It's a very chaste romance between the sea okay, captain well, okay, but she falls and Jean Pierney. Fucking ghost. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know you'd seen that either. I think we watched it. it we, we didn't watch all of it. It, must, it might have been if we were flipping channels and Maybe. I came across it. And we watched 10 minutes of it and that to you counts as having seen the movie. <laughs> I mean, I get the gist of it. Okay, got it. She fell in love with a ghost. Awesome. That was Rex Harrison, who you enjoyed so much in uh, My Fair Lady as oh god, that was as him. the sea captain. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I liked him better as a ghost. I can put that on the list if you'd like to actually see the whole movie. No, that's okay. Again, okay. I, I got the gist. <laughs> Given the state of men, I think ghost dick is probably the best choice any woman could make at this point. You living brothers are just... I don't know. I was going to say something and you totally just threw my train of thought. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Okay. There has never been a ghost story created especially for the adult moviegoer until The Innocence. <laughs> Twentieth Century Fox, which presented Deborah Carr in Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, and such outstanding motion picture immortals as Snake Pit, Gentleman's Agreement, and Peyton Place, now gives you The Innocents. Based on the Henry James chiller of macabre evil. The Innocence, produced and directed by Jack Clayton, the man who directed Room at the Top, turned into fearful reality by the magnificent performance of Miss Deborah Carr. (laughs) 
Perhaps the most controversial concept in human relationships ever presented on the screen. A new and adult motion picture experience. So what, if anything, do you know about The Innocents? I know absolutely nothing about The Innocents. Perfect. Okay. Uh, Pauline Kael, writing for Film Quarterly in 1961, called it the best ghost movie I've ever seen. She said, it's a movie with the pleasures of elegance and literacy. Mmm, classy. (laughs) And indeed, it's a very smart adaptation of one of literature's classic ghost stories, Henry James' novella The Turn of the Screw, which was originally published in 12 weekly installments in Collier's magazine. James was inspired to write this story, apparently, after the Archbishop of Canterbury told him a supposedly true ghost story he had heard about two small children haunted by the spirits of their wicked servants. James took that fragment of an idea and wrote a story so scary that he actually scared himself. After correcting the proofs for Collier's, he told a friend, When I had finished them, I was so frightened that I was afraid to go upstairs to bed. Mm. And the genius of James's story lies in its subtlety and its ambiguity. James was a fan of ghost stories, but always the most psychologically precise and finely tuned of authors. He didn't care for overt demonstrations of supernatural wrongdoing. In his preface to the 1908 edition, James described his desire to avoid the vulgarity of the usual ghost story, which he said sort of always promises some tremendous evil at its center, but Mm -hmm. then always kind of disappoints when you get there. Yeah. And I think that's true. I think if you think about most ghost movies or even monster movies, they sort of stop being scary at the point where the ghost or the monster is shown, Mm -hmm. right? It's like once you see it, it's like, oh, The tension breaks and yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So James knew that any real power to scare lies in the reader's own mind. He said, only make the reader's general vision of evil intense enough, I said to myself, and his own experience, his own imagination, his own sympathy and horror will supply him quite sufficiently with all the particulars. Make him think the evil, make him think it for himself, and you are released from weak specifications. So that's the kind of story he wrote. It it does avoid vulgar displays and easy explanation. Its rising sense of almost overwhelming dread accumulates from suggestion and insinuation and supposition, all located in the sympathetic but not entirely reliable narration of its protagonist, who is the governess looking after these children. Mm-hmm. And I would have said, had I never seen this movie, that it's an unfilmable story. Hmm. Because so much of it relies on what we don't see, what we don't know, on this kind of narration that you're never quite sure whether you can trust it or not. But director Jack Clayton loved the story, and he was obsessed with the idea of filming it. He secured the rights not to the story itself, but to a stage version, also titled The Innocents, written by William Archibald in 1950. And Clayton hired Archibald to write the screenplay as well, but wasn't happy with the result, which he deemed too stagey and too straightforward. It didn't have the marvelous ambiguity Mm -hmm. that he thought the book had. So he brought in a couple other writers, first screenwriter John Mortimer, and then Truman Capote. And Capote apparently gave the treatment the gothic undertones and psychosexual complexity (laughs) that the story deserved. Uh, Clayton said that 90% of what ended up on screen was Truman Capote's. Hmm. But this is just a great movie all around. As Pauline Kael said in her glowing review in 1961, this is the rare film where it's hard to decide who deserves the most credit. In addition to Clayton and Capote, the film owes its considerable reputation to the work of two men, cinematographer Freddie Francis and editor Jim Clark. 
through stunning high contrast black and white cinematography, nimble camera movements, evocative inventive cuts, Francis and Clark achieved on film the subtle almost subliminal complexity that Henry James was able to achieve through his prose. Mm. So I I just love this movie. Okay. Uh it's either going I think you are either going to like it or you're going to fall asleep. A lot of that's going to depend on your general mood and energy level as we sit down to watch it. <laughs> okay. It does have a couple of potentially creepy children, which I know is one of your sweet spots for, for horror movies. I do like creepy kids. Okay, let's go watch this movie. Okay. Oh, goodness, miss, you gave me quite a turn sitting there in the dark. And where are the children? Upstairs with Anna. I wanted to be by myself for a while. To think. Well, miss, I'm sure a little light will make your thoughts more cheerful. Mrs. Gross... There are two of them. I beg your pardon. Two of those abominations. Today, down by the lake, there in the broad sunlight, I saw the other one. The other one? A woman dressed in black. Miss Jessel. But Miss Jessel's dead. She died while... Almost a year ago. Almost a year ago. Almost a year. Flora saw her too. Did she tell you so? No, of course not. She lied to me. Well, it amounted to a lie. Oh, now, miss, I've never known either of the children to tell lies. Or why would they? Why? Because they are both playing or being made to play some monstrous game. I can't pretend to understand what its purpose is. I only know that it is happening. Something secretive and whispery and indecent. Welcome back. During the break, Nakia and I watched The Innocents. And Nakia, we sat in a very dark room fairly late at night and watched this movie for 90 minutes, two hours, however long the movie is. And at the end, when the screen went black and the words, the end, came up (laughs) and the credits started to roll, I believe your exact words were, what the hell was that? Yes. Actually, I probably said, what the fuck was that? (laughs) But yes. I censored it because we say fuck too much on this podcast. Okay. Uh, Yeah, you said something along those lines. Uh Uh-huh. What seemed to be the problem? I think I wasn't expecting the ambiguity. Didn't I tell you about the ambiguity you prob- up front? I think you probably I'm pretty did, sure I did. And I just, well, I didn't, yeah, I pretty didn't. Pretty sure know. I droned on about that. You did drone on about the ambiguity. You and just tuned me out. When I I'm sort talking, of tuned you out. Yeah. So I think that's what it was. Was just the, and it ends rather abruptly. Uh, yes, it does. So <laughs> it was just like okay. Um, so it's ambiguous, and then it's also just like there is a certain lack of resolution. Yeah. Like no, nobody comes on at the end and explains right what it all meant and yeah. what the consequences are and everything. It just sort of ends on a dead child. Yes. <laughs> so that was, I believe, the sort of source of that response. Okay, so so what was your overall reaction to the film? I liked it. I thought it was subtle and there were sort of, you know, the ambiguity, though sort of frustrating, was also what made it interesting because there are a lot of ways you could sort of think about the various happenings in the film Mm -hmm. and you can sort of argue with yourself back and forth about, you know, how it should be interpreted. 
it felt, I don't know if that's, if this is the right word, but sort of sophisticated in a way that a lot of horror films Mm -hmm. don't. um, Literate and elegant, as Pauline Kael said. Yes, literate and elegant. It is a very elegant film. No sort of cheap shots. um, No jump scares. No jump scares. It really all is, it's really all about sort of building an atmosphere and an energy. And it's a film that is... I guess you would call it economical mm-hmm. in that it doesn't add much. Like, you know, it's it's recognizing that all you need is this sort of large, imposing Victorian manner. Right. And all you need is kids that are a little bit weird, but you're not sure if they're too weird. Right. And all you need is, you know, a sort of interloper coming into that space and experiencing it. And she's basically your stand-in, and all of her sort of paranoia and questions create the story. Right. You don't need a lot of sort of effects or Mm -hmm. tricks or anything like that. So I thought it was a really well-done film. Did you find it scary? Um, Spooky, at least? It was spooky. There were definitely moments that were spooky. There's a moment when Ms. Giddens, who is played by Deborah Carr, who's the governess of the children, is they're playing hide-and-seek. And she runs behind, you know, these heavy sort of velvety curtains to hide from the kids. And the way the film sort of plays with foreground and background is really sort of powerful. So we are sort of close up on her face, which is, you know, it's a black and white film, and her face is sort of very pale and white. Mm -hmm. And then in the background, in the window, we sort of see this phantom face of a man (laughs) getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, and closer to her. And his eyes are just piercing. Like yeah. They're dead black, but They've there's these little, little lights, pinpricks of little light pinlights. It just makes them deadly. Fr- and so that was probably the scariest moment. And when he withdraws, yeah. those eyes are the last thing right. you, you see. Right, you still see the sort of light in the eyes. Um, so that was definitely a moment of just sort of spookiness and and eeriness. But yeah, it was mostly sort of atmosphere and, mm-hmm. and energy. Okay, so let's, let's summarize the plot very quickly at the top here. Okay. So... Deborah Carr's character is hired to be the governess for these two children. Mm-hmm. Uh, she meets with their uncle, played mm-hmm. by Michael Redgrave, of the famed Redgrave acting dynasty. Mm-hmm. And he has inherited these two orphan children and doesn't particularly want them. Wants nothing to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> He's basically looking to hire someone to take over yes. all of that because yes. he can't be bothered with it. Right. Um, and he hires her on the condition that she is not to bother him <laughs> no matter what. Not a micromanager. No. Not a very warm family man no. either. No. Okay, so the short form is she goes to the house, there are these two children, she becomes convinced that the spirits of these two dead servants, mm-hmm. uh, the valet, Peter Quint, and the former governess, and the former governess, Miss Jessel, are haunting the place and are specifically haunting the children, mm-hmm. corrupting the possessing children, possessing the children, yes, possessing the children, mm-hmm. and... There's an old housekeeper there, Mrs. Gross, who's been there forever, mm-hmm. who tells her a little backstory on the two servants who were apparently having an affair, unhealthy kind of affair. Abusive relationship. Abusive, <laughs> sadistic, yeah. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yes, the governess. So Miss Giddens, the governess, grows increasingly paranoid at the thought of the children being you know, possessed by the spirits of Peter Quint and the former governess. And the big question of the film is, 
are we watching a ghost story where there are actual ghosts who are actually possessing these children? Or are we watching a woman go insane? Right. <laughs> and take the children with her? And that's kind of the, the open-ended question of the film. And this is a debate that has been raging since the short story was published mm-hmm. in 1898. And there are, you know, two distinct groups of critics that have discussed this story, and I've seen them called apparitionists and non-apparitionists. Oh, wow, they have names. <laughs> they have okay. names, yes. All right. um, critic Edmund Wilson did a study of the story in which he determined that there were no ghosts, calling it a study in morbid psychology. <laughs> he said the young governess who tells the story is a neurotic case of sex repression, and the ghosts are not real ghosts at all, but merely the governess's hallucinations. She is the only one that sees the ghosts. She is. Well, she's the only one that admits to seeing the ghosts. Uh, okay. So I think, that, to be fair to her, she's the only one that admits to seeing the ghosts. And so going back to, we talked before we watched the movie, I said, William Archibald's play and the original screenplay, Clayton wasn't happy with because he felt like it was not ambiguous enough. Mm-hmm. That was a ghost story. Mm-hmm. As he, as his play told it, and as his first version of the screenplay told it, there were ghosts. There okay. was no question about that. And so that's why he had the rewrite done by Truman Capote to make it more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think the general consensus about this movie is, the movie comes down more on the side of no ghosts. Okay. You, however, thought there were ghosts. Yes. We had a little argument off the air <laughs> right after we watched this movie in which you were like, there are fucking ghosts. Yes. Um, I mean, I could, and this is the thing, I could argue both sides of it, actually. I think I'm picking the ghost side just because I'm more inclined to think that children are evil <laughs> than that that woman was crazy. I think that that's really what it comes down to. <laughs> I think my brain has been trained on the very sort of cut and dry evil child archetype of, right. you know, the omen and <laughs> the exorcist, the exorcist mm-hmm. and what was the little girl, but she, she was like an 80 year old woman in actuality or whatever. Oh. Like <laughs> those sorts of films where there's no question about it that is an evil child and it must be destroyed mm-hmm. versus saying this woman has, you know, obviously lost her mind and is on the verge of, you know, taking these children with her. Right. Successfully takes one. Um, <laughs> so I think that that's, that's why I'm more inclined to fall on that side of things. But I, I honestly could argue both sides of it. Okay. Well, you said you, you come down more on the side of, you know, ev- there being evil children. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the two theories are mutually exclusive. That's a good, sure. Because the children are weird yes. either way. Yes, they are. Unless we are doubting everything we see on screen, mm-hmm. the children are weird. Yes, they are. And to me, their behavior goes beyond, oh, these are precocious children to these are, <laughs> these are weird children. And this is, right, so this is part of the thing is like, I'm okay if they die. Because even if <laughs> they aren't possessed, uh-huh. if they aren't inherently evil, I don't know that they're going to grow up to be okay people. Um, so we first meet Flora. Right. Who is the young daughter. And she is beautiful, angelic, beautiful. sweet, is affectionate. She is she though? 
you know, she speaks a little too, like, she's been here before, kind of, like, that's an old soul right there. And there's a scene where she is watching a spider eat a butterfly with, like, amazement and joy. That's... (laughs) She says, there's a lovely spider. Yes. He's eating a butterfly. It's quite odd. Uh... (laughs) So... You know, all kinds of red flags for me. Were I a governess, I'd be like, "Mm, this is not going to work out. Um, And then we meet Miles, who is returning home after being kicked out of school because he was a quote-unquote injury to others. Yes. That's all we know at that point. She gets a letter from the headmaster saying he had been an injury. He was somehow a contaminant or a corrupt sort of influence among Mm -hmm. the other children. So those are, again, very strong words for a child. And she tries to ask him about it, and he will not answer the question. He will not answer. He is another one that's very, he's very charming and very manipulative. Uh Uh, They both are. They both play on the fact that they are cute little British children (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who are precocious. And I think they also recognize in Miss Giddens that she's almost childlike and naive in a way that they aren't mm-hmm. as children, that they almost know more than she does. Mm-hmm. So they take advantage of that. On that, I think I think Deborah Carr's casting in this role is really interesting because the story, it's, it's a 20-year-old girl. Okay. She's on her first posting, which Miss mm-hmm. Giddens says this is. Yes. In the movie. But she is young and naive. Mm-hmm. And I think Deborah Carr, being in her 40s when she made this movie, mm. gives it a whole different spin mm-hmm. that I think actually works. Because she still has that naivete, but she also sort of has that kind of spinster, sort of lonely spinster yeah. desperation thing. Yeah. So that, in, in sort of her hunger for the affection of the children and to be loved by the children... And all of that, I think that really works. Absolutely. I agree. And I also think when we seeing her as an older woman who this is her first time leaving her home and her mm-hmm. this first time she's lived away from her home. So this right. she's been stuck right. living with her parson father. Right. So the assumption is she has never been in a relationship with a, a man in a yeah. sexual relationship. So there's all this sort of repression surrounding right. her character. At one point, the children ask her about her house. Is it a big house? Right. And she says, no, it was a very small house. And they say... Was it like too small for secrets? Too or small something? for secrets, yeah. right. And she says, no, we couldn't have, couldn't any, have secrets. any secrets in that house. So yeah, that whole just, you know, miasma of repression mm-hmm. that, that surrounds her. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, weighs the scale on the side of this is all happening in her mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> She needs to get out and get laid and have, you know, sort of, so that sort of thing. Um, But again, the children are absolutely terrifying. Right. Um, Flora. Or are they? They might just be a little precocious and a little strange. This is beyond precocious. They are orphans. They have been neglected by their guardian. They've been shipped off to this huge house with no one but the old housekeeper. They're going to be a little weird. I just, I don't know that it would be this weird. I think, and I said this last night, is I think maybe Flowers in the Attic weird, but not <laughs> this sort of weird. Not like homicidal, sort of scary weird. But we don't see them do anything homicidal. Flora hums a lot. That bugs me. That that equates to homicidal sort in your of, book? When you're like humming weirdly. <laughs> <laughs> Kill it. <laughs> that makes me concerned. And then she asks... 
Flora about it, and Flora's like, oh, I don't remember where I learned that song. Right. But then we learned that that's the song that's playing in the music box that used to belong to the dead governess. Right. There's, there's things like that. Then there's the, you know, I mentioned the um, hide-and-seek game mm-hmm. earlier. There's a point where Miss Giddens is looking for the kids, and she comes up on an at- in, into the attic and we see Miles sort of sneak up behind her. And what starts out as sort of a hug around the neck turns into him full on strangling the shit out of her. <laughs> puts her in a headlock, yes. And she's like, you're hurting me, you're hurting me. And he's just like, ah, ha, 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 this is fun. <laughs> so that, you know, it's things like that that are... Okay, but A, that is the kind of thing that young boys might do. They're playing rough. And, no, but you know, once somebody says, you're hurting me, stop, funny. he keeps going and almost gets tighter around her neck. And B, and this is what I started to say about sort of the in-between theory here, because the children are weird, and we know from the old housekeeper that Peter Quint and Miss Jessel were having this weird, destructive relationship out in the open in the house. Mm -hmm. And the children probably witnessed it. She says that the children worshipped Peter Quint and loved Miss Jessel and followed them everywhere they went. So they may have learned a lot of unhealthy things Mm -hmm. from those two servants. They might have modeled some terrible behavior on the two servants. That still doesn't mean that the two servants are ghosts possessing them. They may have just been corrupted a little bit Mm -hmm. by those two people. Isn't that a form of possession, though, we could argue? Uh, I mean, you could argue that, sure, (laughs) in an abstract kind of way. I mean, like, it doesn't have to literally be ghosts are embodying these children. It could just be that they have been corrupted and somehow changed by their relationship with these two dead people and changed for the worse and therefore evil. That's like what I said about Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. That it's a ghost story without the ghost. Right. That it's you know, and yeah, to a certain extent, just the lingering effects mm-hmm. of someone's life can be a form of haunting. I guess if you want to go the psychological route with it. So they still deserve to die. <laughs> the children did. Well, maybe not die, but they deserve to. There, you know, maybe there didn't need to be a spiritual exorcism so much as a you know sit down with the therapist <laughs> exorcism but either this way this was pre-therapy this is they needed to be dealt this with this is pre-freud although it anticipates <laughs> a lot of what freud would talk about yeah you know who miles reminded me of there's an episode of the twilight zone and i think this was sort of later twilight zone where there's a little boy and he has like powers and his family yes. is deathly afraid of him yeah. and everybody's just like eh, don't you know get him angry because shit's gonna get bad um <laughs> like that he has that energy around even with um mrs gross the way she would talk about Miles was very much like, there was one instance where she said, oh, I'm so glad we're not going to have any trouble. It was like this nervousness about, right. you know, Miles being upset or something happening with Miles that would just sort of cause problems in well, the Well, and part of that is is just class, yeah. the realities of class. That's I true. Mean, he is a young little lord mm-hmm. of this manor, and she is, as we discover, an illiterate housekeeper. Right. So I think that automatic deference to him mm. is is just part of the system. Mm-hmm. He he outranks her. That's all there is to it. And I think little kids like Miles are. I mean, I think that's what they're sent off to school to learn is how to be little peers of the realm. Mm. He's a little disturbingly confident and mature. However, yes, he basically full on makes out with <laughs> Miss Giddens. <laughs> He has her tuck him into bed and then kisses her on the mouth. Full on the mouth. For a long time. He lingers there for a while. 
Um, That's a creepy shot. And her reaction to it is creepy. And it was very controversial. In fact, this film originally got the equivalent of an X rating Hmm. in Great Britain when it first came out. And all the sort of psychosexual There's absolutely no nudity. There's no swearing. There's no violence in the film. And yet, just for being full on disturbing, they were like, nobody understands. Well, there is a weird sort of sexual tension between Miles Mm. and Miss Giddens that is very disconcerting. And part of that is because she seems a little more open to it. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing, which again comes down on the on the insane repression theory, is that she is not appropriate either. No, she is not. But I think that's because she. Because at the point when the kiss happens, she's already suspecting that he is somehow possessed by Peter Quint. Mm, I don't remember the order, but okay. I'm pretty sure. So I think part of it is she's trying to engage with him on that to sort of draw that part out of him to get him to admit that he's not this little boy. He's actually this dead valet who likes to beat women (laughs) and, you know, have sex with him in open rooms where the children watch. Um, So I think that's part of it. But I do think there is also an element of, again, her sort of childlike naivete. She is not responding in the way that an adult would typically respond in that instance. Right. Um, She doesn't throw out the... She lets them get away with anything. Yeah, they walk all over her. We see them... We see her trying to teach school, and the second they're not interested, she's like, okay, well, let's go play hide and seek, Mm -hmm. or let's go pretend to have a party. Mm Mm-hmm. She is more like their playmate than anything else. Right. I mean, there's also, there are lots of instances of these kids being weird. You mentioned her cutting class short so that they could sort of have this pretend birthday party. Right. So the kids run off to do, have a a costume birthday party. So they go and get dressed up and they come back downstairs and they put on this little performance for Miss Giddens and Miss Gross. Right. And Miles. (laughs) Recites a poem. Recites the most terrifying poem <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Very solemnly with the candle in front of his face uh-huh. as he sort of dead-eyed walks towards a window as if he's speaking to the great unknown about, is it the devil coming or like someone coming back from the dead? Or and- someone coming, yeah, I think it's someone coming back from the dead, yes. Like so, tracking your grave right. through my bedroom kind of thing, like, and yes. Not a poem a kid should know and welcoming them in that's what that poem is doing it's like saying welcome to you ouija board shit fresh from the grave so you know not a normal poem for a child (laughs) and he's just memorized it like that's his go-to poem Um, (laughs) yeah yeah that is at his fingertips there's the moment when miles is hiding a dead pigeon under his (laughs) pillow in his bed a pigeon whose neck was broken mysteriously not mysteriously miles (laughs) Murdered that pigeon and then hid the body under his pillow and, you know, said, oh, yeah, I just didn't want it to be out there by itself. I'm going to bury it tomorrow. Hmm. Weird. Again, no one is denying that the children are weird. But weird past normal weird. Yes. Don't weird we say, past isn't, it, weird. isn't that like a sign of serial killers? Like if they start out killing animals? Yes, yes, it is. So, mm-hmm. again, maybe do the universe a favor. Okay, just... but talk to me about ghosts. Okay, ghost. When Miss Giddens first arrives, she hears whispering in the wind of someone saying Flora. Someone calling Flora's name. A woman calling Flora's name. Yes. No one has... She asks Flora if she heard anyone. Flora says no. She asks Mrs. Gross if she was calling for Flora. Mm -hmm. She says no. 
How do you explain that? Well, okay, first of all, Mrs. Gross said, oh, it wasn't me, maybe it was Anna, the parlor maid, the other servant in the house. Mm -hmm. So it could have been Anna. No, it was a ghost. Or it could have been a hallucination. But why would she... She had just gotten to the manor. There was no reason for her... She knew there was a dead governess, but she didn't know the circumstances of the death. So there was no reason really for her to sort of be primed to... No, but she knows the child's name. She's walking through the estate for the first time, walking through the trees. Mm -hmm. Her mind wanders a little bit. She, you know, imagines she hears someone calling Flora's name. The ghost. (laughs) So the first time she sees something Mm -hmm. is way at the top of this tower. Right. She catches just a glimpse of a figure standing up there. Yes. That's actually a really cool shot, too. It is. Um, So she's in the garden sort of picking roses, which roses are a sort of recurring motif in the film. Mm -hmm. These sort of bright, white, pure roses that are sort of constantly wilting and shedding their petals throughout the the film. And this sort of like death of innocence Mm -hmm. sort of thing, which is also, I mean, the the bird that was under Miles' pillow was like a white pigeon. There's lots lots of... Also, while we're there, because I'll forget to say it later, let's... The whiteness that you yes. were talking about in the film, that was supposedly Freddie Francis, the cinematographer, had such bright lights on this set mm. that Deborah Carr was like wearing sunglasses in between takes. Wow. That's how that's how he achieved those very bright whites mm-hmm. in that sort of high contrast against the It's very the dark. It's very dark. It's a very cool effect. There's one scene. Because it is, it's almost unearthly yeah. without being unnatural. Right. And it sort of marks her as, again, this sort of foreign entity mm-hmm. in the home. Um, there's a scene towards the end where she's walking through the the mansion in this really just prissy Victorian <laughs> nightgown. And it's just, it's basically a white nun's habit sort of thing. And it's nighttime, so it's dark. And she's only lit by this that, that sequence is candelabra amazing. that she's holding. And she's just blindingly white in the, in the amongst all the shadow of the mansion. But yes. So going back to, right, so she's in the garden picking these white roses. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about that scene is the sound. Mm -hmm. Because as she's in the garden, you hear the sounds of nature. You hear birds chirping. There are sort of bees and things flying by. And Flora is humming weirdly, as she (laughs) always does. And then all of a sudden, the sound just drops out. Yeah. And she, and it's just dead quiet, and she looks up and she sees this sort of shadowy figure standing on the top of the tower. She can't quite make it out, and they do this really cool effect of, like, the sun being in her eye. Like, yes. the film sort of blasts out in a way. Mm-hmm. So that It's like lens flare. Right, so she can't, can't quite make it out, and we can't quite make out what's happening. And so that's the first instance of her sort of feeling as though they were not alone mm-hmm. in, the, in the, the house or on the estate. So she goes up to the tower, and she finds Miles there with all his pigeon friends. And he's like, I'm the only one that's been up here. You probably just saw me. And she's like, no, it was definitely a man that I saw. Yeah. And then he says, I expect you imagined it, my dear. Yes. And that comes up a lot. And Flora, she and Flora early on in the mo- in the film have a little exchange about sort of the power of imagination and how hearing mm. things, you shouldn't let your your mind sort of get too carried away because we tend to imagine things. So there are those sort of seeds and, that they plant. That it- And here's where I think the film does come down on that side of things. Mm-hmm. The very first thing the uncle says to her, I think it's the first line in the movie, 
is he says, do you have an imagination? Mm. And she says, yes. Mm-hmm. And that line is not actually in the book. That's, Interesting. that's something they put in for the movie. So I do think that sort of skews everything right from the start. That into she's thinking prone that Maybe to... she just has mm-hmm. an overactive imagination. Mm-hmm. That scene in the garden you were just talking about, she's cutting the roses. And then doesn't she see like this yes. creepy statue? So she, pull, she pulls back some branches and there's this statue of a, of a child almost sort of a cherubic figure but sort of demonic but sort of demonic and then a black beetle or something crawls out of the mouth of the statue and it's just like oh and and again so it's this idea of like the corruption of children and the sort of evil and darkness that can come out of children but it could also be that she sees that and is startled by it Mm -hmm. and that starts to put the idea into her head that the children are possessed Right. Mm-hmm. And also just coming across that statue in the garden when she's not expecting it. Mm-hmm. That feeling of not being alone. That feeling of this dark, threatening figure. And that's when she looks up and sees... The figure for the first the time. The figure on the top of the tower. Mm-hmm. So, yes, she could just be starting to go crazy right there. <laughs> we don't know. I mean, the film is great in that part of the the ambiguity of it, right, is that it so successfully puts us in her perspective we can see how she gets there and i think we can yes i think part of it is just the sort of claustrophobia of it all of like you're stuck in this estate even though it's a huge you're stuck there the film doesn't really leave the estate except when they go to church i believe right and you're just kind of sort of stuck with these kids and it i think sometimes things can start to play with you a little bit Mm -hmm. when you aren't getting some sort of external stimulus from somewhere else. Right. But there's a scene where Miles is out riding his horse. Yes. And he's sort of going pretty fast on it, and he's circling Flora and Miss Giddens. And so the camera's sort of spinning in this really sort of off-kilter, disorienting way. So we feel sort of her nervousness at the situation and her being sort of disoriented and dizzy mm-hmm. by it. And then again, the sort of sound comes in and it's the sort of cacophony of like a flock of birds almost, mm-hmm. it sounds like, or like a helicopter. And it's very like oppressive and foreboding. So it's I think it's shots in shots like that where you can sort of feel how she gets to the point where it's like, oh, something is not quite right. Right. We can definitely, we can definitely feel it happening mm-hmm. to her. Whether we make the same leaps she would make Mm -hmm. i think is another question because she she makes some intuitive assertions Mm -hmm. that are not justified in anything we have seen Mm -hmm. like okay so she's she's decided that there are these two ghosts she has quote-unquote seen them yes but then she suddenly says, okay, she tells Mrs. Gross, I figured it out. They want to corrupt the children. They want to possess the children because they want to be together. And the only way they can be together is, through is the by possessing the children. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know where she gets all of that, <laughs> except that she's just been sitting around thinking about it and has come up with this. Which, again, is part of that when you're sort of stuck in a house and you're not going anywhere, you're not talking to anybody else, your mind can, like, you get a little bored and you you start to think... Too much into things that otherwise you may be just sort of let go. Right. So you're coming down on the side of she's crazy. I'm coming down on the side of those are some weird ass kids <laughs> who are probably going to grow to be weird ass adults. And well, one of them isn't going to. Well, no. The only difference in that I, the only different choice that I would have made is I would have quit. You may be like, oh yeah, nah, this is all right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just I don't need go. this job. <laughs> That's okay. 
you know, the film opens with a shot, this really great shot of her hands. Again, they're sort of white, you know, in front of this dark black background. Mm -hmm. And we sort of hear her voiceover saying this almost desperate prayer that she's going to honor her promise that she made to the uncle to take care of the children. I'm going to save the children. They need someone to whom they can belong and who'd belong to them. And it's this very... Which is what the uncle had said to her. Right. Desperate sort of cry of like, I'm going to save them. And the implications that they are also going to save her in a way, Mm -hmm. Um, which I guess also adds to the argument that (laughs) she was (laughs) not in a stable place and was it wouldn't have taken much to sort of push her over the edge. She also says in that opening voiceover narration something like, I wanted to save the children, not destroy them. Mm -hmm. So right from the start of the opening of this movie, that idea is planted in her head Mm -hmm. of who is the real monster in Mm -hmm. this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And the idea that it might be her. Right. All right, well, we haven't talked about the ghost of Miss Jessel yet. Mrs. Jessel is a cool ghost. Mrs. Jessel is mostly in the background. She isn't as aggressive as the Peter Quint. She's very far away, always across the lake. Which, I, this was something that we talked about last night, was when Miss Giddens sees Peter Quint's face in the mirror during that hide-and-seek game, it is after she saw a picture of Peter Quint right. in the attic. So she had a very clear idea of how he looked and she could then describe, see him and then describe him. At no point does she see a picture or is told how the former governess looked. Right. So she's always sort of far away, sort of fuzzy and hazy. Um, I think the only thing she's told was that the woman was young and beautiful. Right. So we see her as just this sort of phantom figure in all black with long black hair but not standing in the weeds, standing in the weeds across the lake. Or there's one great scene actually where it's sort of late in the film and Miss Giddens has decided that she's going to go to London, I think. And so she's in the schoolroom, sort of packing up her books and things waiting for her carriage to come. And she turns and the former, the ghost of the former governor's governess is sitting at her desk sort of crying. You right. hear this weeping. And she is shocked, but not really. Like, she she's just sort of stands and looks at her and then walks toward her, and then she disappears. Mm. And we see, or at least she sees, a tear on the desk. So then the question is, is the tear real? Or are we just imagining <laughs> what she just imagined? Right. And then it is in that moment that she decides, I have to stay here. I have to save the children. We can't let them out of our sight. I'll do anything to sort of save these kids from being possessed by these ghosts. Well, this is another, to me, interesting thing about her actions, because she several times mentions getting some help. Mm -hmm. She talks about going to see the vicar. She talks about writing to the uncle or going to see the uncle. Mm -hmm. She never quite does any of those things somehow. Well, to be fair, she wrote the letter to the uncle and then Miles stole it. So that's why that letter didn't go. Yeah... (laughs) and the message she was given when she got the job was you have to handle everything you have supreme authority up to and including demonic possession apparently yes okay (laughs) (laughs) but i mean she she does become you know ironically she becomes a woman uh, possessed she's possessed with this idea that this sort of secretive indecent thing is happening Mm -hmm. To these children, and it's happening because of these ghosts, and she must sort of banish them in order to save the children. 
See, I feel like she's more than possessed by that idea. I feel like she's getting off on it. Well, a that's bit. right. So that's the sort she's of really excited <laughs> at this weird situation. Tension she's of really it. into it. I mean, there's there's something to be said about the language that is used throughout the film. Mm-hmm. The language of indecency. The language of I think she calls Peter Quint and the the, the dead governess abominations. Yes, obscene. Uh, obscene. I think she says. Mm-hmm. So there is this sort of underlying abhorrence and attraction sort of happening at yeah. the same time. Right. She's horrified at these <laughs> stories of. Peter Quinn and Miss Jessel carrying on their affair. Mm -hmm. But she wants to hear about it. Yes. She wants to hear all about it. She keeps pressing this poor old housekeeper for more details. She's she's fascinated by it. And after that, um, in that scene where she sees the ghost of the dead governess in the the schoolroom, Mrs. Gross comes in to find her. And again, you know, she decides that she's going to stay and she's going to try to banish the spirits. She said, Miss Jessel was here. And she spoke to me, and I felt her, and I felt how she feels, and she said, she is pitiless and hungry for him. So even that love, like, yes. she's hungry for him. Yeah, and I felt what she and felt. And I felt what she felt. So, again, there's this sort of, she is, you know, intrigued by it all yeah. um, in a way that isn't totally innocent. So it's after that scene that we get the shot that we mentioned earlier of... Miss Giddens is sitting alone, sort of in like the parlor room or whatever of the of the the estate, and it's dark. The house is sort of just shrouded in shadow, and again, the only light is sort of her whiteness and the whiteness of her nightgown and the candelabra that she has with her. And I believe she's sitting there reading her Bible, is what it looked like. Yeah, yep. um, <laughs> preparing for uh, the reckoning, and she starts hearing whispers and what sounds like. The ghosts of Miss Jessel and Peter Quint engaging. (laughs) Getting it on. (laughs) Engaging in their games Uh throughout the house. So you hear Miss Jessel sort of whisper, love me, love me, love me. But at the same time, crying and, you know. Saying you're hurting me. Saying you're hurting me. So this sort of sadomasochistic Mm -hmm. relationship, um, the sort of whispers of this relationship going on throughout the whole house and so she sort of picks up the candelabra and walking through the house and again the whole it's just all darkness around her and all shadow around her and she's sort of frantically trying to open the doors these locked doors so again you go back to this idea of this big house with so many secrets and closed doors but when those two were alive they were obviously doing things out in the open that the kids could witness so this idea of secrets being kept and whispers and that, that is just such a fantastic It's a sequence. wonderful sequence. It's so powerful. And it's, again, you talked about the sound. Mm-hmm. It's just, we have the sound of her footsteps, and we have the ticking of a clock, and we have the music, and we have the wind outside. And then, like you said, we have this whispering mm-hmm. and this laughter and this conversation from behind these closed doors. And it's all layered on top of each other. Um the editor, we talked about the editing earlier, putting these images mm-hmm. on top, sometimes four or five images superimposed yeah, over each other. Yeah, so there's other. a great scene where she's been having nightmares yeah. throughout the whole, since she arrived at the estate. And so I think it's that same night when she finally goes to bed. We sort of see her in bed, and then superimposed on that is images of the picture that she saw of Peter Quint, mm-hmm. and then his sort of face coming in and out of focus. And then superimposed on that is a close-up of the kids' of their face and their mouths whispering to each other. Um, so it's all the th- sort of all of these pieces of the puzzle that she's been trying to put together, and it's just sort of reinforcing and building more and more in her brain. But it's a really gorgeous, gorgeous shot. 
and again, it's just the sort of power of sound and visual that makes it feel... It's almost like, you know, standing in um, a canyon and you get the echo and you can't quite figure out where mm-hmm. the sound is originating from. And it it's scary in that way because you can't pinpoint, you can't focus. It's just so sort of cacophonous and all surrounding. So as we come to the climax, um, when Ms. Giddens is sort of at her wit's end and has decided she just has to full on confront the children, she decides to go for Flora first. Right. And Flora is out on this sort of gazebo alone. Beside the lake. Beside the lake, dancing by herself. Yeah. Listening to the music box. Listening to the music box that belonged to Miss Jessel, who I don't know that we said, but who, she died because she drowned herself in a lake. At least that's the story that we After Quint died. After Quint died. She couldn't live without Quint. So that's sort of the connection to the lake. And she goes down to the gazebo, and she sees the ghost of the governess sort of standing up in the weeds across from the lake watching Flora dance, and she tries to force Flora to sort of face the ghost and to admit that she sees the ghost and admit that they are still somehow in communication. And to be fair to the other side of things, there does appear to be a moment, and I don't think it's the first time in the film, Flora looks like she is staring directly directly at at her. Yes, yes. There's a moment earlier where Flora's humming that weird-ass tune, and she's looking dead at what we see to be Miss, the ghost of Miss Jessel. And again, Miss Giddens is like, who are you looking at? Who Do you see who's over yeah. there? And Flora looks back at her like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. So that happens again in this scene. And she sort of, you know, does the crazy woman shake the baby sort of thing. Where she's like, <laughs> admit that you see this ghost. Tell me that you see her. And Flora has a full-on fucking breakdown and starts crying and screaming sort of obscene things. <laughs> at Miss Giddens that she takes as further proof that Flora must be possessed because no child would ever speak that way. But part of what Flora is saying is, I don't see anything. I have never seen anything. You are a crazy bitch. Yes, but she could be lying. (laughs) Or, alternately, she could be telling the truth, and that's why she's upset about this. But then she's so, the language she's, it's not, it's not little girl language. Well, again, there's no doubt that these kids were slightly corrupted by the actual living servants. Mm -hmm. So yes, she might have picked up some salty language (laughs) from Peter Quint while he was alive. (laughs) It doesn't mean she's possessed now that they're dead. But yeah, she is freaking out. Yeah, she's she basically screaming, screaming her, head her head off. And so they decide that she should go to London. And Miss Giddens sends her and the rest of the, and Miss Gross and the rest of the staff away so that she can be alone with Miles. Right. But first, she and, she and Mrs. Gross have an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Because Mrs. Gross came out to the lake while this was happening. Yes. And while Miss Giddens was saying, you see her, I know you see her, about the ghost. Mm -hmm. And then so after, when they're back in the house, Mrs. Gross says she didn't see the ghost either. Right. So she could be lying too. Why would she, (laughs) what possible motivation does she have to lie? I don't know. She seems like someone who doesn't want to rock the boat. She just says, I I think that's. I think her not wanting to rock the boat and the whole class thing explains why she goes along with Miss Giddens as long as she does. Mm -hmm. She's not an educated woman. Miss Giddens has been officially put in charge. Mm -hmm. So Mrs. Gross is like, when when Miss Giddens says, oh, there are ghosts, Mrs. Gross is like, oh, okay, what should we do about that? I think it's interesting to see the entire movie from her perspective, Mm. which is that this fucking governess comes in and goes crazy (laughs) 
Mrs. Gross is humoring her as far as she can, but then at the point where Flora's freaked out, Mrs. Gross is like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with pretending. I'm not going to pretend that you are anything but crazy. I'm going to take this opportunity to take the child, at least this one child, away from you. Mm-hmm. Or they're all lying. <laughs> why are they lying? I don't understand why you think sweet old Mrs. Gross is lying. At best, you can say she is, what was your term? Ghost blind. Ghost blind, yes. Yes, Mrs. Gross maybe may ghost, may ghost blind. blind. Maybe she just can't see the ghosts, but the ghosts are there. Yes. I think that's the best argument you can make for Mrs. Gross. Okay, that's what I'm sticking with. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but yes, she uh, she takes little Flora away, which turns out to be a good thing. <laughs> and Miss Giddens... Also sends all the other servants away. Yeah, she sends staff away. To be alone in the house with Miles. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting moment right before that happens when she and Miles are sitting in front of the fire together. And it's like they are husband and wife. Mm -hmm. They are sitting there as equals in front of this fire. It's a weird scene. It is a weird scene. Well, and it's also important to note how her wardrobe changes. So she was in sort of white frilly outfits and mm. very ornate things. And then sort of as the film goes on, she's in a stark black, yep. almost funereal dress, akin to what we see the ghost of Miss Jessel wearing. <laughs> so then you have this sort of picture of Miles as Peter Quint yep. and uh, Miss Giddens as Miss Jessel sitting together by the fire in this sort of sort of almost romantic little moment. And then, and when they are alone, Miles sort of calls her out on that. Yeah. They they start out, and she says, you know, oh, now we can talk together like adults. Mm-hmm. And Miles thinks that's pretty cool. And at some point, he says something like, why did you want to be alone with me? Mm-hmm. In this sort of very kind of seductive, almost accusatory kind of way. It's It's disturbing. It is disturbing. But again, I think she is projecting the persona of a grown man onto Miles. She's projecting Peter Quint onto Miles. And so she isn't engaging with him the way that an adult would engage with a child. She's engaging with him as an adult would engage with another adult. Which is way inappropriate. Super inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she does this little dance with him where she's trying to get him, like she did with Laura, to admit that he sees the ghost of Peter Quint and that he is, you know, being possessed by Peter Quint and being influenced by him. Which, incidentally, is another one of her sort of intuitive leaps that I don't know what she's basically and she says if we can just get them to admit it then that breaks the then that will yeah. break the spell yeah. i don't know what she's basing yeah, that sure. on <laughs> maybe it's in the bible okay. i don't know she was reading the bible maybe she got some intel <laughs> i have no idea i guess it's like if you face the evil and you admit the evil it somehow break i yeah i don't know the truth somehow sets the truth will set you free that's what it is um <laughs> So their conversation sort of escalates as she starts to try to force and get angry with him and get him to admit that he sees Peter Quint. She starts out asking him what really happened at school, which she's never gotten an answer from him about. And he finally admits that he was saying things. Yes. That were making the other kids afraid. (laughs) Making the other kids uncomfortable. He doesn't say what he was saying. It's just that he was saying things that were making the other kids uncomfortable. And this, again, is where we can assume that he learned some things from Peter Quint that he probably should not have learned and he was upsetting the other boys with that 
And this scene is happening, it looks like they're almost in like a greenhouse sort of space yeah. or something. Because as the scene goes on, they're both getting sweatier and sweat, like their yeah. foreheads are glistening with sweat as the sort of madness sets in. And as the tension of the scene ramps up, um, it just adds to this feeling of like a pot boiling over. That, um, that's the Truman Capote. That's that Southern Gothic. <laughs> yeah, it is very Southern Gothic. Very Southern Gothic. And so they're in this very tense confrontation and Miles is standing in front of a window and she sees the ghost of Peter Quint through through the window sort of standing over Miles. And she's saying, you know, admit, admit that, you know. And he's angry. And he he's is angry. raving He's just like, her. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. He's calling you're her saying, a harpy yeah, and a, a, a damned and, hussy. Mm-hmm. And so again, there's this instance of a child using unchildlike language. Yeah. And so, again, in her mind, that's further confirmation that he must be possessed by the ghost of this grown man. And then he throws Flora's turtle <laughs> that he'd been holding the whole time out of a fucking window. Yeah. So, animal death number two. Um, so, he... Uh, if he hit shell first, he might have been okay. No, that turtle's dead. Um, he... And that's... Let's go back to the turtle. Okay. So... There's a moment where Flora's sitting down, sitting at the lake. <laughs> I love that moment. And she turns and she asks Miss Giddens, can turtles swim? And Miss Giddens is like, no. So she reaches down in the fucking lake and pulls the turtle out. She like, says, oh, I thought perhaps they couldn't. But she had put him in. He had been in there. <laughs> yeah, she was, she was just like, oh, yeah, I didn't think so. And then pulls him out. So that turtle is definitely dead. Anyway. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. I love that moment. <laughs> Miles sort of runs out of the house, mm-hmm. and Miss Giddens is chasing behind him, and he falls to the ground. Yeah. And she just sort of picks him up, and they're in this really amazing little garden area where they're surrounded by these very sort of tall centurion sort of statues mm. that encircles them. And she's, you know, again, doing the crazy lady baby shake. And it's like, say the his name. The camera's twirling right. around them. And say around, his name. Showing those say statues. his name. Say his name. And he, and one of the statues then is Peter Quinn. Right. Turns into Peter He's Quinn. standing there. And Miles finally says, Peter Quinn. His name is Peter Quinn. But then he turns because she says, do you see him? You see him. And, and But Miles turns. He's like, I don't see him. Where is he? I don't see him. I don't he see says, him. He says, oh, is he here? Where is he? Right. He does not see he does not Peter, see Quinn. Peter Quinn. And then he just sort of falls to the ground. Yeah. And she cups him up in her arms and she's like, Miles, it's okay. It's going to be okay. It's You're all free over now. now. You're, You're free. free. Looks down. That boy is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Stone dead. And she screams out, Miles. And then that's the end of the fucking movie. And then kisses him full on the Kiss, mouth. Does kiss him full on the mouth. And, <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. Which is at the point where you said, what the fuck was what that? What the fuck was that? Right. So that is the innocence. <laughs> okay. Last night after we watched this, you were all pro-ghost. And I think, I think you've come around to the other side of it. I'm still pro-ghost because I think ghosts are real. One. <laughs> Two, I still think that there's some weird shit happening there that can't be explained. Three, even if there weren't ghosts, I'm okay with those kids not being alive. <laughs> I mean, Flora's still alive, but I'm okay with... That. Miles killed two animals. That is a serial killer. <sighs> and they both obviously have serious anger issues when triggered. So they're not going to grow up to be productive adults in health. This is a society that does fox hunts. I mean, you know, what killing animals is what they're no, supposed to do. No, that's different than tossing a turtle out of a window, <laughs> drowning a turtle... <laughs> And snapping the neck of a pigeon. Those those are different things. That's not fox hunt behavior. 
There is, by the way, a prequel to this movie. Um, in 1971, a director named Michael Winner made a film called The Nightcomers, mm-hmm. which is the story of what happened before Peter Quint and Miss Jessel died. Mm-hmm. So it's it's Marlon Brando mm-hmm. as Peter Quint. And, I mean... It's not based on anything in Henry James or, you know, anything really in this movie either. It's very sadomasochistic. Um, It's not a horrible movie, but it's, again, it it like, to me, misses the point of everything that was interesting about Hmm. The Innocents and about Turn of the Screw. Mm -hmm. Because it's exactly what Henry James said in that passage I read at the beginning, that, you know, if you tell me these were two evil people that were having this twisted relationship, I'm going to imagine it all. Right. And if you show it to me, which is what this film does, it's not as interesting. Right. It just doesn't have the same power mm-hmm. if you just make it all literal. Right. I I love the ambiguity of this mm-hmm. of this story. No, it is. I mean, it is. You know, fascinating. And again, there are so many things happening around ideas of repression, ideas of sort of lost innocence, and even this sort of turning. What is a sort of natural happening in children that they grow up and they lose their innocence, lose their innocence mm-hmm. and but turning it into something sort of evil and perverse. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are some interesting things going on in it and I really did enjoy it. I think the, the ending was very abrupt, but I don't know what else would happen beyond that. That wouldn't then be, let me explain to you what just happened. And, right. And that would just, you know, that would sort of ruin right. it. It is, however, interesting to speculate on what would happen right. after that Because you have to explain this dead kid. You have to explain this dead kid. <laughs> yes. And we don't even really know how the kid died. Right. Did, he just did, sort of passes out. Was he injured out. in the fall? Right. What, did he die of shock? Yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of unclear. Yeah. So, it's interesting. But it, it seems to me like the governess might have gotten in some trouble for that. I would imagine. That would be hard to explain. <laughs> Very difficult. Which in the story, she apparently does not because the story starts, just to add another layer of ambiguity and unreliability to it, the story starts with a framing sequence. Mm -hmm. So we have a narrator who may or may not be Henry James is attending some kind of house party where people are telling ghost stories. Mm -hmm. This other man says, I got a good ghost story. He has to send home to get a manuscript. That was written, supposedly, by this governess, mm. who had been his governess as a boy, mm-hmm. the guy who's telling this. Mm-hmm. So this is supposedly the true story of his former governess from her first job. So she was still a governess. So she was still a governess. <laughs> Got some good references, does she? <laughs> yeah, that's mm-hmm. the part I can't quite figure out. Yeah. Get, you know, I don't know. Can't imagine the uncle writing a good letter there. Can't imagine Flora or Mrs. Gross saying anything no good about how this all went down not at all <laughs> uh brad lighthouser writing in the new yorker he's talking about you know the various interpretations or the attempts to solve the question of the book mm-hmm. and he says all such attempts to solve the book however admiringly tendered unwittingly work towards its diminution yes if we choose to accept the reality of the ghost the turn of the screw presents a bracing account of rampant terror And if we accept the governess's madness, we have a fascinating view of a shattering mental dissolution. But the turn of the screw is greater than either of these interpretations. Its profoundest pleasure lies in the beautifully fussed-over way in which James refuses to come down on either side. In its 24 brief chapters, the book becomes a modest monument to the bold pursuit of ambiguity. It is rigorously committed to lack of commitment. 
At each rereading, you have to marvel anew at how adroitly and painstakingly James plays both sides. And I think the movie does the same thing. Absolutely. I think it categorically refuses to give you a definitive answer one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And maybe, like you said, it ultimately doesn't matter because it's... Whether these are actual ghosts or whether it's just sort of the trauma that they left right. in their wake, right. the outcome is kind of the same. The ghosts don't do anything. No. They don't interact They're at not all. moving things no. around. They're not even really trying to scare people. Mm-hmm. Um, they, don't, they don't... They're just there. They're just a presence. Right. Mm-hmm. They're just corrupting by their presence. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Ultimately, I guess it doesn't really matter. And maybe... Maybe I'm also on the side of ghosts because I'm all, I am hesitant to endorse the story of crazy pent up spinster went crazy. Mm, okay. The feminist in you rejects that. <laughs> this idea that this woman was so desperate for children that she obviously wasn't having on her own or any of her own and hadn't found romantic love or fulfillment in that way. So her only fulfillment could come from sort of, again, belonging to and wholly beholden to these children there there's also a hint we didn't mention of an attraction to the uncle yes um and i think that's stronger in the book but i think it's there in the movie Mm -hmm. too and miles says something to her at one point where she's writing a letter to the uncle and he says oh you're blushing as you write this letter or something like that so i think that's part of it too it's just like i just don't i'd rather she just be like oh yeah these children don't belong here I, I think everybody in this movie is working at the top of their game, yeah, no, including all, Deborah Carr. Yeah. It's a tremendous She's performance great. from Deborah Carr. She's Carr. great. And the kids are great. It's by far, I think, her best movie. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, The King and I has a deep, <laughs> deep uh, connection with she me. Could, she could have killed some of those kids. He wouldn't even have missed them. <laughs> but she she plays it so perfectly right on the razor's edge Mm -hmm. of crazy Mm -hmm. that it's she could be a totally sane woman responding to this extraordinary situation she's in or she could be totally batshit crazy yeah and she doesn't give away anything either way yeah but again it's like a you know that's sort of one of the interesting things that the the film sort of plays around with is this idea of like secrets and whispers and things said and things left unsaid and and the paranoia that that can cause. Like, it's a very human thing to see two people whispering in front of you and be like, what the fuck are you talking about? And, like, make you super hyper paranoid about mm-hmm. what's happening. And for me, when two kids are whispering, I'm just like, oh, shit's about to happen. Like, I'm, I'm on edge. There's also, I mean, Mrs. Gross several times throughout the film kind of argues for not finding out all the secrets. Yeah. That some things are better left just undiscussed. Mm-hmm. Um, she well, says... When she was talking about the relationship between Peter Quinn and Miss Jessel, she said they were using rooms by daylight as though they were dark woods. So right. this idea of like things that were happening in day that should not have, you know, that should have been hidden away and should right. be done behind closed doors. And But Miss Giddens also talks about freeing the children mm-hmm. as waking them from a bad dream. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Gross says something like, well, if you'd taken care of as many children as I have, you'd know that sometimes the worst it's thing worse. you can do yeah. is to wake them from the dream. Yeah. So just sort of leave everything alone. Mm-hmm. Leave it all undiscussed. Don't drag it out into the light. Uh, which, you know, to be fair, <laughs> she has an argument considering that Miss Giddens kills this child. Well, he dies. <laughs> Would he have died... <laughs> 
had this conversation not taken place. You know who was killed? The turtle. You know who else was killed? The pigeon. So don't forget the butterfly. The bu- uh, fucking butterfly. So no, I'm not, I'm just not gonna shed any tears over that child. I'm really not. Miles killed Peter Quint also. Uh, funny you mentioned that. That's exactly <laughs> what happens at the end of that movie I was just talking about. Oh, the the prequel? Yep. See? <laughs> it doesn't matter if it was a ghost or if he was just a dick. He needed to die. So we are told that Peter Quint took a mysterious fall yes. on the stairs one day. That he There was a, a, a sort of wound on his head. And Miles and Ms. found Ms. him. Miss Giddens asks Mrs. Gross, was it an accident? Yeah. And Mrs. Gross is like, well, he made a lot of enemies. Yeah. And he, he was did a, a lot of stuff that could have caused him violence. Yeah. Yes. So, Miles killed him. You've just decided I've that. De- I've decided. <laughs> that kid needed to die. <laughs> he would not have grown up to be an okay dude. <laughs> he just wouldn't have. Yeah. I don't think that was the moral of the story. <laughs> I don't think you've <laughs> that taken... That was my takeaway. I don't think you've taken the right... <laughs> that was my takeaway. ...thing from this. That, that was my takeaway. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week as we continue our Halloween movie marathon. Nakia, at one point in high fidelity, when the characters are listing their top five favorite somethings, Jack Black accuses John Cusack of making a sly decoration of new classic status, (laughs) slipped into a list of old safe ones. Next week, I am making a sly declaration of new classic status for a recent horror film, Julia DeCornow's 2016 vegan nightmare, Raw. Yeah, I'm vegan. Yes, I know. So, this is, no. (laughs) (laughs) You're also kind of squeamish. I am very, I'm not particularly into cannibalism, which I believe is what this is about. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm I'm not on board. I don't understand why you would eat a person when you could eat ribs. Because eating ribs, you could feel like you're eating a person. I mean, I think it's sort of the same. Like, it's the bones are in there. Maybe people taste better. Sort of tear into it. I don't think that they do. Maybe they do. I really don't think that they they could. Like, people put shitty shit in their body. I can't imagine (laughs) that it is tasty. And pigs eat really well? Well, ribs are good. When I ate them, they were delicious. You might be delicious with a little barbecue sauce. No, I'm just saying, have a rib. Some bacon. Get a big old turkey leg if you, you want to. You have ribs? Like a. No, but you don't. Nobody wants this. You don't have a lot of meat in your ribs. I really don't. I would not be a particularly filling meal. <laughs> Raw is currently streaming free for Netflix subscribers, and it's also available to rent from all the other major streaming services. In the meantime, you can find <laughs> us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, or leave us a review on iTunes. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. I will say, the creepiest kid that you have exposed me to (laughs) is that kid in the Doctor Who episode. The gas mask kid. The Are You My Mummy kid? Yes, that's probably the creepiest (laughs) kid. (laughs) That is... An image that, unfortunately, I have not been able to expunge, but yeah. (laughs) So. And he Uh, was dead, right? That was uh, a dead kid. He was mostly dead. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He ended up being like nanobites or something. Like it was some... (laughs) I love that you remember this. It's been (laughs) 10 years since we watched that story. That made an impression on you. It did. (laughs) I did kind of torment you with images of that kid for a long time. Yes, that became a a running gag in our relationship. Put it as the screensaver on your Mm -hmm. computer and stuff, yeah.
It's kind of a dick move. Yeah, because you're kind of a dick. <laughs>